Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator. Today I have Chris Whitco joining me, Associate Director of the School of Public Policy and Professor of Public Policy and Political Science at Penn State University, as well as Mike Pipe, Center County Chair of the Board of Commissioners and Co-Chair of the Election Board of Center County. Today we have quite a a panel of discussions here um, to cover quite a few items, including challenges to local government during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly with a focus on the 2020 elections, uh, including all of the issues surrounding that, including vaccine distribution, closing schools, emergency management, and just general challenges to public policymaking. Before we dig in, I'd like uh, to give my guests an opportunity to introduce themselves. Uh, Commissioner Pipe, uh, or as Mike, as you'd uh, like us to call you, please uh, uh, give our listeners an idea of of your background, please. Sure, thank you. So I'm going to be entering in my uh, 10th year as commissioner here in Center County, and it's been a privilege to serve the citizens, but certainly when you sign up for a county commissioner, you don't know exactly what the community and the country is going to bring you. And we certainly had a really interesting past year with this pandemic. So I'm happy to share my viewpoint and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the life of a commissioner during these last few months. Great. Thank you. Welcome. And Chris, could you give us a background? Sure. Yeah. Like you said, I'm the associate director of the School of Public Policy, a fairly new school here at uh, Penn State, which was started just a couple of years ago. Got our, our second group of students coming in this fall, uh, which has been really nice. And before I was here, I was at the University of South Carolina, and I did my PhD at the University of North Carolina. Excellent. Thank you. And welcome as well. So as I mentioned, we have uh, quite a few items to discuss today. There's uh, quite a bit happening in the world these days um, that is very much focused on, on the, your areas of expertise. Um, my first um, item of business here is, is for uh, Mike. Um, as you mentioned, I'd, I'd love to have just kind of a, a view of some of the biggest challenges that, that you and your fellow commissioners and the staff of the county have really encountered over the last month. Um, how do you see some of the larger social and economic impacts of the pandemic uh, really affecting local government and, and the local communities? Sure. Thank you, Michael. Uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here and I look forward to the discussion with you and Chris today. So typically county commissioners really function as a fiscal and budgetary and contractual uh, oversight of county government. And I think an argument could be made that county uh, county government and county commissioners in Pennsylvania have played even more a larger role than ever uh, here during the pandemic than we ever have before. Many of the decisions and many of the uh, actions that each county has taken have affected the operations and the lives of those citizens who live in their counties. And uh, our biggest challenge was initially during the uh, stay-at-home orders. We saw a lot of different opinions, uh, the struggles of local businesses uh, come up, and we as county governments did our best to try to put good information out there regarding uh, the stay-at-home orders, CDC guidance, Department of Health information, And it became a challenge after a while for many counties that did not have health departments. The vast majority of counties in Pennsylvania, mostly rural, did not have county health departments and were not able to uh, as smoothly put out some of that information. 
So the Pennsylvania Department of Health really became our, our Department of Health. We did our best in Center County, and I will argue that most counties did, but the counties that really did have the, the Departments of, of Health at a county level that had those relationships, had those uh, partnerships already in place, I really feel that they were ahead of the curve, but we slowly catch, caught up to them. Uh, but we're now in the, in, the, in the stage where there's light at the end of the tunnel. We have the opportunity for the vaccines that are coming out in the next few months uh, and into 2021. And our challenge now becomes working with our uh, emergency management folks at the state and, and local level here to help with the vaccine distribution. And so our next big challenge is to talk to our citizens about who is first in that, in that line. And there's many, many, it's not, it, it's, it's, there's many different categories that the CDC is putting out. And so it's going to become very incumbent upon us to explain to our citizens why the CDC and the Pennsylvania Department of Health and our governor is putting those things out there. So I think that's the next tension point and the next thing that we have to be very aware of as we go into the future. But I think that we've tried to do our best when it comes to making decisions based upon data and research. But at times uh, we've, been we've been building the plane as we've been flying it. And so that's been a challenge as well. Uh, uh, but I think that as much as we can continue to engage with stakeholders, constituents, businesses, you name it, I think, and explain to them why we're putting certain information out there and making certain decisions, I think we'll be in a better position as we move forward. Great. Thank you. And I really have to uh, applaud all the work of, of uh, Center County, um, Commissioner Pipe, as well as the other uh, commissioners in, in kind of Writing the ship here as a as one of your constituents as well. So thank you so much for your your tireless work the last uh, 10, 12, <laughs> and continuing many months ahead. Um, I appreciate that. Same... It's, it's sir. I was just gonna say appreciate that. It certainly is a team effort. Thank you. Along the same lines, um, Chris or Dr. Whitco or Chris, however you however you like to be called. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Um, Many of, of your years in academia and also in the public sector is really focused on um, unemployment and inequality broadly. Um, as we've seen unemployment really skyrocketing across the country and, and today's uh, job numbers uh, be, uh, be remarkably low in terms of growth, um, we, and we don't really have much of an indication of that changing anytime soon. Um, could you really please discuss um, what you've seen that's different about this pandemic versus uh, previous recessions or other times of economic distress that you've studied or, or experienced? And, yeah. and also really, how has this kind of pain been distributed dis, uh, in, in an unequal way? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a really important question. I think um, there's a couple things that are a little bit different about this pandemic-induced unemployment. I mean, the big one is just how, uh, how quickly the unemployment came on. Um, it, between March and April of 2020, unemployment went from about 4% to 15%. So that was in about a month. If you look at the last kind of big, big spike in unemployment we had, which was during the financial crisis, it took a few months to go from just about 4% to 10%. So the, the, the rapidity of this was just unprecedented, I think. Even if you went back and had good data on the, on the Great Depression, I mean, unemployment got higher, but it, it would have taken a much longer time to reach that point. So one consequence of that is that um, the systems that would typically deal with this sort of stuff were just completely overwhelmed. Uh, the unemployment insurance system, particularly in certain states, there was a lot of media coverage of like Florida in particular, you know, just absolutely impossible for people to get through on the phone. Um, you know, so there were people who just after trying for a couple of weeks to get unemployment insurance, 
just just couldn't even do it and just just gave up and uh employment has increased a bit since then uh because of some of the reopening and things like that but like you said alluded to anyway there was a pretty bad jobs report today the unemployment rate is officially 6.7 percent i was just reading but that is actually an understatement because a lot of people have just simply left the labor market and stopped looking for employment altogether so so it's 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 a huge problem and it's going to be a problem for a number of months and a number of years in terms of the inequities there's there's lots of them i don't think this is necessarily unique um to this recession it always is going to hit certain groups harder when you have larger spells of unemployment typically the less educated more marginal people in the labor market and things like that but we are seeing that pattern and, and maybe it's a little bit more extreme now um I think one thing is even for people who are still employed, there's a lot of inequities. So people who have PhDs and college degrees and professional jobs are able to work from home relatively safely. If the kids are homeschooling, then they may be driving you nuts, but that's still better than exposing yourself to coronavirus every day at work. Whereas people with lower educated, uh, lower educated workers are more likely to be out there on the front lines. Um, you know, working in grocery stores and retail and things like that. Of course, with the exception of healthcare professionals who are pretty highly educated typically and putting themselves on the line. At, so there's a lot of inequities just even with people who are still working. In terms of the unemployment, it's really differential across industries, right? The, the, the hospitality industry and that sort of thing has really been hit hard. I was looking up some numbers from February to April 2020, employment in leisure and hospitality dropped 42%. So the number of people employed in that industry dropped 42%. In most industries, it was you know 5%, 10%, something like that. Um, and because you see workers working in different industries, different types of workers working in different industries, it's gonna, of course, impact them differently. So race and ethnicity has been a, been a big factor in determining unemployment. There's been, I mean, unemployment rates have gone up for every demographic group, of course, but from February to June, 2020, the uh, unemployment rate for whites went from 3% to 9%. For blacks, it went from seven to 15%. And from Hispan for Hispanics, it went from five to 15%. Um, we're also seeing gender inequities in this. Um, initially, actually, the initial round of unemployment didn't seem to affect men and women too differently. But what happened is this fall, as schools kind of, a lot of kids were staying home, women dropped out of the labor market at much higher rates than men. So um, there was a September, in September, this was from an NPR story I was looking at, there were about a more than a million Americans dropped out of the labor market and 80% of them were women. 80% of the people who dropped out of the labor market in September were women. And that's right around the time that, you know, it was clear that schools in a lot of areas were going to be, at, you know, maybe half time, half in person, half at home. And um, unfortunately, that child care burden and that, you know, child education burden does fall disproportionately to women in our society. So they've taken a major hit in the labor market. And I, unfortunately, that's going to be something that's going to have repercussions throughout their careers because dropping out of the labor market is very bad for your progression in your profession or 
at your job and getting pay raises and stuff like that. So that's going to be an inequity that is going to, if we don't actually try to take specific steps to remedy it, it's going to be with us actually for decades for all of these women who have dropped out of the labor market. And then finally, let me just say, um, this is fairly typical, but I mean, lower income workers have been, been crushed by unemployment much more so than higher income workers. So a Pew survey from August showed that 33% of people in lower income households reported that they or someone in their household had lost a job compared to 14% for upper income households. So we're seeing some of the underlying inequities that we have in our society, which have really been growing worse over the last few decades um, in terms of income inequality, the uh, racial stratification and ethnic differences that's been there for a long time. And it's really just exacerbating all of these underlying inequities that have been there for a long time and really laying them bare for us to see. Really unbelievable circumstances that so many of our fellow Americans are, are experiencing and, and uh, a lot more pain to come, unfortunately. Um, going from uh, kind of a, a macro orientation um, towards uh, kind of the micro, the, the, the county level um, here in Center County, Pennsylvania, um, Mike, you know, as a, as a longtime resident of Center County myself, um, I, I know that there's significant socioeconomic differences. Um, and, and employment differences, backgrounds that are very unique, um, and that can result in, in inequalities as well. Uh, as you've seen uh, other localities and, and the state government here in Pennsylvania uh, balance the merits of uh, shutdowns in various ways, um, in, in more targeted orientations now, as, as we've learned a little bit uh, going uh, as the pandemic has, has continued. Um, what, have we, what have we really learned um, from your perspective and what can we apply going forward, um, especially with, uh, with an orientation towards reducing that inequality that, that Chris uh, discussed? Well, as Chris said, the pandemic has really laid bare the inequities and inequalities when it comes to economic, racial, uh, you name it. It has just shown a, a super clear mirror of uh, where we are as a country and a state and a, and a, and a community. And one of the most uh, uh, disparate things that has occurred or the disparity we've seen is through the access to broadband. And over the last several years, broadband has been seen as something that is an ultimate connector to job opportunity, family, uh, family connections, uh, to uh, healthcare, you name it. And it used to be, you know, you could be able to chat with people and play, you know, you know video games online, social media, but it has completely been every aspect of our economy is really going into uh, data connection. And so from that, I think the decision makers for the shutdowns and working at home, which I, I think most people agreed with, they were really the ones that were ready to be connected and had uh, uh, strong connections uh, to their computers and broadband. And I think it wasn't the people who were making the decisions uh, had, you know, disparate connections uh, with broadband. And so that really made the connections or the people who weren't able to get uh, broadband, even decent DSL access, uh, left them further behind as we've moved even more towards a work at home uh, community and economy. And so it'll be very interesting to see as we go forward to appreciate the fact that if we are going to, if businesses are going to make the determination, we don't need to lease as much space, we don't need as much footprint in the office, and we want to give a little bit better of a work life balance, 
we at county government are having these same discussions. We think we're maybe half a year out from having to make uh, some, some uh, once we see the pandemic really start to subside in vaccine distribution. So middle of 2021, we might be making some permanent decisions to say hundreds of employees may now be working from home going forward rather than coming into the office. But we need to situate that in a, in a space where if somebody wants to work in Phillipsburg for county government or wants to work or lives in Snowshoe, wants to work for county government, who have some issues with broadband, how do we then say to them, the only opportunities you have are if you can work from home, and then does that then cause a more of a con concentration and, and, and issues when it comes to we're just hiring people who have broadband access? And again, that can perpetuate poverty if, if we have good jobs, healthcare, retirement benefits, but you can only work for us if you have a strong broadband connection, that's really even going to make it even more difficult. So I think that means that government uh, really, I mean, we can make small investments at the county level. I think most commissioners would agree. It's really the state and the federal government that has to come forward in a, you know, a New Deal type, uh, you know, really huge broad. I mean, that needs to be the number one thing we're doing. And I think you're going to see that affect then transportation infrastructure when it comes to roads. That typically was on the, the, the top of the, the list. But if we're if we're not driving as much, if we're not using mass transit as much, do we put that money into broadband? So I think that the, the the really the thing going forward for Center County and many other communities is how do we keep if we're going to be changing the way we work and live, how do we make sure we have the infrastructure in place and we don't further exacerbate the poverty we have in our communities. So I think that's the big thing going forward that we can learn from the pandemic and make strategic investments going forward. And along the same line, uh, we've discussed in the past um, how the pandemic actually in some ways can serve as a bit of a catalyst for uh, innovation in our, in our public policy making. Um, could you discuss some of the, you know, the role of innovation or opportunities um, that, that Center County has seen in, in uh, orienting more towards a, a digital environment uh, and also how that can leave people behind? Absolutely, so as part of the CARES Act funding that every county received, every state and county received in, uh, in I would say the middle of 2020, uh, we were able to make strategic investments into allowing more of our workforce to work from home. So that included additional servers we procured, uh, more um, uh, uh, access licenses for basically logging into your, from your uh, desktop from your home. Um, we bought more laptops, I mean, you name it. So we now have all that infrastructure in place that I don't think that we're talking about just you know sort of recycling it and returning it. We now have hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in that, and how do we use that moving forward? I mean, we've pur purchased larger, um, you know, access points for broadband uh, in in our in our in our in our uh, or our um, uh, building buildings here at the county, just because we need more access points for people who are working at home and a larger uh, broadband access. And so I think that you're going to see many county governments. Maybe, maybe even state governments, I, I, don't, I don't know this for sure, but basically saying to their employees, you can now work from home. That was, uh, that was, that probably, if there wasn't a pandemic, maybe that would have taken five, 10 years, but with the pandemic, it's taken months to just fast forward us to that point. Uh, we are seeing the private sector in certain places in Center County reach out to us because uh, they would like to know how did we do it? You know, how did county government do it? Uh, the private sector with the money they received from uh, PPP and certain loans, excuse me, that was just making sure that they could run their business. County government, we were able to take some of the money uh, because we did have tax revenues that we received that we could still make sure the operations were going. We were able to basically invest that into new infrastructure. And so we've gotten private sector people reaching out to us saying, 
you had this, uh, these funds to do it. How did you do it? What did it look like? And what are you seeing so far? I do, I do think it is important for us just not to jump forward and just go in that, in that space uh, without some data and research. So we're looking at, are we still able to serve constituents in our community in, in, a, in, a, in the way that we were before the pandemic? Do we see improvements? Are employees enjoying that? We do have some employees that prefer coming to work. They prefer, you know, I, I'm going to leave my home for nine hours or so. I'm going to go to work. I like my 30 minute commute. I, I appreciate that. But in terms of some employees are saying, you know, I actually prefer this. This, this works better for my, uh, my work life balance. So again, it's, it's having those kind of conversations with our, our employees and having that. And I think coming out of this all, I mean, I think businesses, private sector, nonprofits, government can have actually better relationships with their employees because they have the ability to say with them, we're talking about maybe re reformatting and rechanging how you're going to be interfacing with your career. And we want to know more about that. So I think at the at the end of the day, the human resources uh, can really be uh, it, can, it, it can it can get us to a better place with how we're interfacing with our employees. But yes, it, it's been we've been on fast forward uh, for 2020 for sure. And uh, Chris, I I'm interested kind of in your perspective, um, taking stepping uh, back from the the county level to to the broader state level, um, as well as uh, some of our discussions on on federal level policymaking. Um, through your career, you have uh, you studied how the public and, and organized interests have uh, different effects on the policymaking process. Um, I wonder. What your current, what your take is on on the current policymaking climate, uh, where we have almost these natural experiments of very unique applications of of public health uh, guidance in different states and different localities, um, and and how those uh, we're we're potentially measuring those outcomes and effects, um, and how the public engagement um, in some of these decisions is is really a unique environment from from past circumstances. I'm thinking about masking mandates, uh, which have had staunch opposition um, in various uh, various localities and from various segments of the public. Um, how does this level of public engagement with policymaking really compare to your experiences and, and what are some um, consequences or, or positive outcomes from it? Yeah, those are good questions. The, the first part about, you know, different states and even counties within states doing different things and kind of setting up opportunities to understand how these different you know, public health or, or other programs work, I think is a good one. Um, there's going to be a lot of studies coming out. I mean, uh, this pandemic has been terrible, but it's going to birth uh, thousands of dissertations, I predict, uh, for academics in the coming years and, and lots of papers and even books. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're able to take that data and we're able to see, you know, do mask mandates matter? There's uh, a study I saw of Kansas floating around that seemed to show that in the states that adopted, or the counties rather, that adopted mask mandates, there's been a slower rate of increase of coronavirus compared to those that didn't. Um, there's some methodological challenges. We don't need to get too deep into them, but I mean, one thing I would just say when you're kind of reading these studies in the New York Times, just keep in mind that the counties that adopt mask mandates are not the same probably in a lot of ways to the counties that don't adopt mask mandates, and it would go the same way for states, right? States that have really reacted vigorously uh, with public health measures to coronavirus are quite different in a lot of ways than states that aren't doing that. So it's hard to make apples to apples comparisons. 
we have all sorts of ways we we try to do that but it but it is a challenge in terms of the the kind of public engagement on these issues and in some cases public opposition on these issues it's definitely uh, it's definitely there i mean one thing we need to keep in mind particularly with the mask mandates is or you know mask just practices not even mandates is masks are actually not terribly unpopular if you look at public opinion surveys i was looking at an ipsos poll that came out just yesterday in fact and it said uh, 70 this was a nationally representative sample 72 percent of people would support a state law um, mandating mask usage and 69 percent would support a federal law so that's a that's a pretty substantial portion of the population now um and even in in the summer i saw a poll that that showed that even a majority of republicans were fine with a mask mandate now how, what you answer to a survey could be a little bit different than what you do in your daily life this is anecdotal but well i'm i'm down here in delaware county near philadelphia and i haven't seen somebody in a store without a mask since i think april may something like that i mean it's it's nearly a hundred percent and my correspondents in the center county environs tell me once you get out of state college it's it's a little bit lower rate of mask usage i have friends in various parts of the country and i kind of ask them what what's going on where they are and it's it's kind of hit or miss in uh in more uh, red rural areas i think you could say in terms of actual mass usage but that's where a, a unified message you know, coming from government, coming from political leaders in both parties would would really be helpful. So there is a there is a loud contingent of, of anti-maskers. You know, we've seen protests at state capitals. We've seen probably uh, if you're on Facebook, I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Twitter and the genre of uh, mask refusers at, at stores having meltdowns is, is kind of entertaining. But we, we do have to remember it's a it's a pretty small group of people that are militant anti-maskers. And we just need to keep that in mind. Even the protests that have been uh, staged in various uh, state capitals have really not attracted a large number of people for the most part. So I think a little, you know, we, we just need to keep that in mind. A little dicier proposition is kind of when it comes to shutdowns, because I think there you do get into like real I mean, a mask is, you know, really, what does it take to wear a mask? If you're refusing to wear a mask, it's kind of bizarre because it it just, you put a mask on and you can do everything else you wanted to do. You can breathe through a mask. I mean, the people that have them under their nose, that's a little bit confusing to me. But the mask is, is kind of not a big deal. But when we start talking about shutting down restaurants, start talking about shutting down daycares and schools, I think that's where you do get into a lot of, controversy and that's where you get more of a lobbying presence in particular from um, re the restaurant industry and things like that who obviously don't want to be shut down and you know state government uh, government officials even county government officials do have to be realistic about where their tax revenue comes from and in a lot of states and localities it's things like sales tax you know restaurant taxes entertainment taxes and things like that and um so, so that is a pretty controversial issue. And even as our numbers have creeped up much higher than they were in the spring in Pennsylvania, we haven't seen the same type of shutdowns that we've seen. And I think some of that is because of the opposition that you do get. And then just legitimate questions about 
sure, it's bad to have kids in school and have them exposed to the coronavirus, but it's also bad to not have kids in school and, you know, maybe learning at home in a home environment that isn't necessarily the best. So there's a lot of dicey questions when we come to shutdowns and things that I don't think exist with masks. I think if one thing Biden wants to do when he comes in is, is you know, have 100 days of mask wearing. And if Republicans would get on board with that, I think that that would make a big difference. And uh, apparently, based on the studies, it would see it seems to help in terms of the spread of the virus. And I also it's it's fascinating to think about how uh, communication and language matters in this case. I know that, that in some of your work, Chris, uh, you've uh, done some messaging trials and, and different testing of messaging. Um, I, I recently saw um, some work coming out of um, a veteran uh, pollster Frank Luntz about um, what uh, how different populations uh, perceive um, the, the actual use of language. So. Um, in circumstances where something was referred to a lockdown, uh, it was perceived more negatively than a stay-at-home order versus um, a protocol, or, or in addition to uh, a protocol as a COVID-19 safety measure versus a mandate or, or directives or controls, um, and how that really gets at some of the, the, the how we communicate these public health messages uh, really matters in how it, it uh, bolsters um, you know, um, it, it foments anger about personal liberty and those challenges around that. So I don't know if you have any, any comment on that. I think yeah. Nice. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very good point. I think there's two, two parts of that. One is kind of the consistency of the message. And in our highly polarized times, if you have Republican leaders saying, well, masks are, are nonsense or uh, we shouldn't have shutdowns or you know, and then you have Democrats saying another thing, of course, it's going to be polarized, even if the public health advice is, is consistent with one of those perspectives. And that's a that's a problem. So we, what we need is when we have good science and we have good public health consensus, we need leaders on both sides to really be embracing that and and getting it out there. And then you mentioned the other kind of framing stuff. And yeah, how you whether you call it a lockdown or whether you tell, call it a temporary business closure, those really evoke different images. And there's been some studies of this regarding mask usage as well. Like what type of uh, arguments actually work to convince people to, um, you know, to wear masks? You know, is it better to focus on the effect on the community? Like one issue is a lot of young, particularly males, feel like, well, they're not very susceptible to coronavirus. So maybe we need to message them in a particular way where, yeah, you might probably, you'll probably be fine, but maybe you'll kill granny. And that's not so nice. Um, and so different messages and even different messages with different populations, that's something that is being studied, um, whether to focus on kind of the social benefits, the individual benefits and, and things like that. So there's a number of studies coming out on that and we'll see more in the future. And you know, the next pandemic, let's hope it's a, it's a long ways away, but I think we'll have an a lot more knowledge about how to do these things the next time around because back in really the last big big one was 1918 and there just wasn't all of the social science and behavioral science research going on at that time so next time around we should be much much better equipped in terms of messaging 
and even just in terms of knowledge of what public health interventions work and which ones don't work so well. Mike, I wonder if uh, you have any uh, anecdotal evidence from uh, you know encountering your constituents um, and, and the value of, of really knowing your audience and how to how to message this and frame some of the guidance. Um, you, you're certainly on the front line of, of this in Center County here in Pennsylvania. Well, I think there were several lessons that we in county government in, in here in Center County took from uh, the initial few months. I think that one of the things that was important was to appreciate that we needed to thank and con constantly appreciate the work that it was being done by our citizens and our residents that were masking, that were doing the stay at homes and whose businesses were affected. And so when we when we looked at the whole state back in April and May, we saw that uh, we were doing a better job of, of containing the virus. We were doing a better job of staying at home. There was a lot of data that was put out there and to give us uh, governments better understanding of how much their, their populations were moving and their citizens were moving. Center County was one of the lowest in the state that was in terms of staying at home. We had about 60% of our um, citizens staying at home during certain parts in the pandemic. Other communities were, that were seeing a lot more transmission in Pennsylvania were not, 40%, 45%. That 15% made a big deal. So the fact that we were coming back to them and saying thank you so much for what you were doing and really appreciating what they were doing, I think was important. Also, I think that the, the governor in Pennsylvania uh, has since realized that the uh, stoplight uh, uh, coding of the different phases of, of uh, the pandemic was unhelpful because just anecdotally, when you get to the quote unquote green phase, people think green means go. And so they have since completely abandoned that. And it also was a little too simplistic, I think, when you're talking about red, yellow, green, where there was a lot more nuances and the and then you're gonna be throwing certain parts of the state back into yellow where others are green. It, it just, it. I appreciate the point. The point was basically to, to, to bring everything to a halt, slow the pandemic and then figure out things and start to reopen in a mindful way, but it was um, it was very challenging. I think that at this point, I've been hearing a lot of, of, of elected officials essentially admit and, and appreciate the fact that the people who are not masking in December of 2020 will never mask. It's never gonna happen. And the, the businesses that are still not complying with this, but certain uh, CDC guidance or DOH guidance are not going to start complying now. And so the messaging really needs to be to the people who are still on the fence. There might be still some people who are like, do we really need to do this for another few months? And so the messaging really needs to be focused on them. The people who are always going to mask or, and you're gonna see, I think in 2022, 2023, people who are still masking, uh, if we don't have vaccine distributions going, going, going or vaccine um, inoculations, people who are actually getting them, if you're still seeing people who are not masking saying they don't need to get a vaccine, uh, then you might still see people who are masking just out of a, a precaution. So. It's, it's going to stay with us. Uh, you know, it's not as if vaccine's going to happen and we're all done. Uh, there, there's going to be, uh, this is going to linger for several years. Um, I even think it's going to be, depending on what happens with the political landscape, be litigated on a national level coming into 2024, potentially. So this is with us in terms of the culture, in terms of the zeitgeist. Uh, but I do think the messaging really right now, and we're very cognizant of that, needs to be on the people who are you know, really stressed out, getting stressed and feel like maybe 2021, they start to relax certain things. But we're, we're saying remain vigilant, protect your neighbors, making it very local, do your part. Uh, let's get this through as a community. Those are the messages that I think that really help and have shown to be working here in Center County.
And with that, we'll conclude part one of our conversation. Tune in next week for the release of part two for further discussion of COVID-19 and its impact on local public policy. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.